0: Welcome to Dwell, um, if this is your first time here, this is part three of our Bible overview, and we're, we're just up to, we're only, don't worry, we're only in, still in Genesis, and we're in Genesis uh, chapter nine, and particularly in this overview, we're, we're following the different covenants in the Bible, and um, we, we looked at the Adamic covenant, God's come with Adam and his seed, and how um, his fall resulted in this curse of death being spread over humankind, and uh, last time we saw God's covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant, um, how God promised through Noah, because of his obedience, God is still going to preserve this sinful creation till the Redeemer uh, could come. And um, we saw that there are two different types of covenants. And uh, this is new to you, this is a little recap. Um, we have a type, we might call it a king's contract, a king's contract, um, where um, you're like, this is like the Adamic covenant. Here you go, Adam, you're in the garden by grace. He's done nothing to earn it. He's just plopped in this garden, made, created, da-da, here you go, enjoy it. But then to stay in the garden, he has to obey. So to remain there, he needs obedience. And his, his blessings or curse are the outcome, depending if he obeys or disobeys. That, that's a, what we might call a, a contract, a king's contract, or the posh term, a suzerain vassal treaty. The other types, what we saw with Noah, the Noahic covenant is a different type. Um, it's where that, that covenant was cut. They were in as a result of Noah's obedience. He was the figurehead of that covenant. And because of his righteous obedience, well, that's what triggers this covenant. And it means it's on by grace for his offspring. So even though God says after the flood, humankind hasn't changed, they're still wicked, God says, nonetheless, I'm still going to preserve creation so that the Redeemer might come. And so anyone who's in union with that covenant head, Noah, uh, is blessed. And we're going to see throughout this overview that we need to refer back to this because there are two types of diagram, uh, two types of covenant that they're, they're not all the same. So then, just to remind us where we are, if you want to fill in this box on your handouts, by the way, we should have a handout. And um, so how would you fill in this box? Well, who are God's people in chapter nine after this covenant? Well, it's, it's Noah, isn't it? It's Noah and his offspring, Noah and his seed. His, different, his three boys and, uh, and their families. Uh, what is God's place? Well, remember how God's curse has been partially lifted off the ground as a result of Noah. And what does he do? He plants this garden, plants a vineyard. It seems like it's a new beginning. It seems like a new creation, a new beginning. And what does God do? God's presence. Well, God blesses all of creation. And, and he gives them that sign of the rainbow, that promise to, to uphold his covenant, uh, that that the boundaries uh, that he put that he put in place in Genesis one, he would maintain, uh, even though uh, mankind is still um, is still wicked. So God's people's God's place God's presence, and that's where we got to last time. By way of recap, okay. Look, turn with me to Genesis chapter nine, verse one of your Bibles, and here. Noah is uh, given an old command. It's the command to spread God's name. Chapter nine, verse one, then God blessed Noah and his sons saying to them, "Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. This is the same command given back to Adam and Eve, back in, uh, in, in chapter two, sorry, mankind in chapter one. And it's the same kind of command then is repeated. And, um, God clearly hasn't changed his plan. He still wants his blessing and his rule to flow out from God's place to the ends of the earth. And um, if you look at the end of this chapter, remember how Noah, we saw this last time, Noah has three sons. One of them, sadly, ends up cursed as a result of his sin. But uh, God says to Shem, verse 26, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. <coughs> May Canaan be the slave of Japheth. So Shem is the blessed line. He's the one through whom the, the promised seed would come. And Shem's name means just that, name. Shem is the line through whom God will spread his name to the ends of the earth. And even here, we have a promise of that. The Japhethites is where all the Gentiles came from. We're Japhethites, everyone in this room, hello. And we one day are going to, it says here, we'll dwell in the tents of Shem. The, the, the Gentiles will come to be blessed through Shem, through him. And we're going to see how uh, later in this overview. So there's an old command being repeated. And it, if you look in chapter 10, it looks like a very promising start. Um, the, uh, as we read about how the Japhethites and the Hamites and the Semites... They all spread out uh, to the ends of the earth. Well, at this point, they don't spread out, but it says they do. Um, we're, we're told that there are various different places they go to, the different na- nations which they settle, different cities that they build, the different languages that they speak. Uh, in total, there are 70 nations here, all from, uh, and if you see from this diagram, you kind of see where they all end up going. You see where out and the Shemites and the, and the Japhethites um, and uh, that's, that's where they he- head to. and um, But what the question is, what, what precipitated this worldwide expansion? What led to all these nations going all over the place? Well, the answer is actually in chapter 11. Chapter 11 chronologically should happen first. Um, so uh, chapter 10 looks like obedience, mankind spreading out in obedience to God's will. But chapter 11, we get the real reason. And unfortunately, it's Disobedience. Uh, so turn with me there, chapter eleven, and we discover what happens at the Tower of Babel. Verse three: All these people they're gathering it at, at Babylon, uh, Shinar, and they said to each other, "Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly." They use brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, "Come." Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? So that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You see, mankind's original strategy wasn't to obey God, wasn't to spread out and spread his name, but rather to stay together and do the opposite, build a name for themselves and, and the, the Tower of Babel is commonly misunderstood. Um, oh, by the way, this is a lovely um, tapestry. No, sorry, oil and toner. Um, someone's drawn out the, the whole sort of um, Noah's family tree and how it spread into all these different nations. Um, particularly enjoy that. But anyway, here's, here's, uh, here's probably what uh, the, the Tower of Babel looked like, or something like it. This is the ziggurat of Ur, which is a modern-day Iraq. I think ISIS might have blown this up by now. Um, but anyway, this was. It's still there. Praise God. Well, um, here's what it still is, what it looked like. And, and originally it would have looked something like this. And people often, I was taught when in Sunday school, the point of the Tower of Babel is that people are trying to climb up to God. And that's what I understood it. The arrogance is trying to climb up to God. It's not actually that. It's the arrogance is trying to draw God down to us. See, atop of this tower would have been a temple. And the ancient Near Easterns, they, they, they thought, this is what you've got to do. You, you, can, you can bring God down to our level. You can domesticate God. You can, you can make him um, tame, if you like, and, uh, and bring him down to our level. We can make a name for ourselves. And so you might know what happens. Um, God does come down, uh, but not in order to be domesticated, but in order to bring judgment. And God scatters them. God confuses their languages. That's why it's called Babel, Babylon. Confuses our languages and spreads them out to the ends of the earth. Um, now that might be familiar to you, but I want to go on a very lengthier side because there's something else going on here, which is less obvious, which is probably less familiar, and I want to spend a bit of time here. We we'll have a bit of Q and A on it because I think it's helpful in terms of helping us read the whole Bible um, for ourselves. Because in, here, in, here at the Tower of Babel, is a highly significant event, um, because it is here at Babel that God disinherits the nations God disinherits the nations um, I want to show this to you um, this is a lovely you might have seen the Peter Bruegel painting oil on canvas I didn't realize there's actually another one of these um, it's got a famous painting um, but there's a second one the little tower of Babel which is quite cool and uh, what, what building does that remind you of Colosseum, Colosseum. yeah it's saying like ah, oh, the Romans yeah it's quite, it's quite interesting. Anyway, I wonder what you make of this. So th- this is um, from 1 Chronicles. And um, you might know Chronicles begins by repeating the same genealogies in Genesis. But he, he adds a comment. He speaks of, he um, of, says this, Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother's name was Joktan. So Peleg is called Peleg, divided, because that in his day, that's when the Tower of Babel happened divided what does that mean well in deuteronomy 32 it says this when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of god but the lord's portion is his people jacob his allotted heritage how strange. Who are, my question, who are the sons of God? Uh, what's going on here? Well, Jesus Romney Thor adds a little bit more info. Uh, God says to his people, Israel, after the Exodus, do not lift up your eyes towards all the hosts of heaven and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples of, under all of heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out from the furnace of iron from Egypt to be a people of inheritance to him, as it is to this day. I'm going to make a case that what happens at Babel isn't just mankind trying to make a name for themselves, trying to domesticate God, and then being scattered. In God's judgment, God disinherits the nations. And in fact, more than that, he then hands those nations over to other gods. Much like in Romans 1, God hands people over to their sin. God hands the, the nations over to other spiritual beings. But he keeps one people for himself. He keeps Israel for himself. I need to make a case for this because it's new. Um, every time in the Old Testament you hear the word Elohim, God it's, it's a casual title which can pretty much refer to anything which isn't fleshy. We're fleshy, my dogs are fleshy, um, rabbits fleshy. Whereas anything which is spiritual okay, and that's the hand gesture for spiritual is called an Elohim. So this includes. Yahweh, our triune creator God. It includes the sons of God, who are the, the, sort of the gods placed over the nations, disinherited by Yahweh. It includes angels and cherubim and seraphim. It even includes things like ghosts. Um, remember when Samuel's spirit uh, is, is conjured up by the witch of Endor? It's an Elohim, we're told. So this is a, this is a catch-all term to describe what might be described as the, the, the divine council. And you see hints of this in places like Job chapter 1, where God has these, uh, his divine council with him, the, the creator God and, and all of the angels gathered around him. And you get hints in various other places, in 1 Kings, in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 11. Again and again and again, we, we see this. Um, but I think I, Psalm 82 is the most helpful. Turn to the person next to you and try and make sense of this. Okay. Read Psalm 82. Let me read it, otherwise we're going to have 19 people, 20 people reading at the same time. And then chapter person next to you, what do you make of this, Psalm? Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of all the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Person that's next to you, what do you make of this weird psalm? One of the weirdest there's lots of strange stuff in the Bible which is unfamiliar, isn't it? And um, I, partly the good thing about the Bible is you can slow down and see there's lots of weird stuff which is new to us, and maybe God is more mysterious uh, than, than we perhaps um, originally uh, thought, um, and that's a good thing. Um, I wonder what you make of this psalm. I can't, I can't go into it all, but, but, but I just, we'll have a bit of Q&A in a minute. But I hope you see that this, this divine counsel, God almost... Um, yeah, I think the best phrase is God disinherited the nations, handed them over to these other spiritual beings, and yet what did they do with that responsibility? It seems like they led uh, their people uh, they're, they're under their charge into sin. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. Pharaoh in Egypt was a god, or at least he was considered a god, um, the human manifestation of Ra on earth. And you might, if you read through Exodus, as we're going to see next week, Again and again and again, the plagues aren't just against the land of Egypt, but against the gods of Egypt, against particularly Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh would have been one of these um, gods uh, who, who, who have been uh, taken aim at here. Or what about um, uh, in, in, uh, in Daniel 11, where you've got the, this battle, spiritual battle going on between the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece? Um, whilst down below there's an earthly battle going on between Persia and Greece. And there's like, a, there's like these um, spiritual representat- representatives duking it out. Meanwhile, there's earthly battles going on. Do you see, it's strange, but I think that this is what we're teaching, and I think the reason this, this will help us in coming uh, weeks to get our heads around this. So there we go. So um, God's people sinfully desiring, uh, to, sorry, uh, mankind desiring to make a name for themselves. And, uh, and God scatters them. But there's one guy he keeps. And so notice, after the Tower of Babel, we then follow the account of Shem's family tree. Again, his name meaning name. And it lands on a chap called Abram. It's clearly through Abram and his seed that blessing is going to come to all the nations. But the curious thing about Abram is, verse 28, he is living in Ur of the Chaldeans. In fact, we're told elsewhere that he's an idolater. In Joshua 24, uh, we're told that uh, Abram is an idolater from Ur of the Chaldeans. In other words, he's an idolater from Babylon. And that is the guy whose line we're going to chase after a bit of Q&A. Good. Should we go into a bit of Q&A now? Yep, so... Um, um, do, do I think that um, behind a human king like the pharaoh, yeah. there is a spiritual reality, um, and inje- a demonic reality, um, which stands behind that? Um, well, certainly, with with in Pharaoh's case, yes. Um, I, I think he was clearly a man; he was human. Yeah. Um, and yet it was believed um, that he was a representative of Ra of, of, of the divine. Do I think Ra, you know, is as everything you know, that that's, um, the, the Egyptians believed he was? Well, well no. Uh, um, but clearly, as you read through the Old Testament, um, in Isaiah, you have places where it says that, that there are no gods at all. But, but I think sometimes we read that verse and we think, therefore there's no um, basically it's just God. Um, perhaps a few angels and then and then created world and we forget there is a whole old spiritual realm there are angels there are demons there are principalities and powers there's there's all this other stuff going on um, and uh yeah i i think as you read the old testament there is a spiritual reality behind these idols so um the point in isaiah i think is that someone you know lops down a tree and you know makes some food on half the wood and then makes an idol out the other half and bows down. And Isaiah says, well, that's stupid. It's not a god, is it? Um, but I think it's talking about the wood. I think behind that piece of wood, there is a spiritual reality. Um, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 10, I can show you this in the New Testament in a, in a, in a clearer way, perhaps. Um, I mean, obviously, there's, there's a lot of mystery here, so I can't give you really clear answers as I'd, I know, perhaps would like. Um, uh, thank you very much. Uh, chapter 10, verse 18. Uh, Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an <laughs> idol is anything? no. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have to be part of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So yeah, a piece of wood is a piece of wood. An idol is just a, a... But behind that is a demonic reality, a spiritual reality. And I think something, something like that is going on in the Old Testament with the nations. Um, those 70 nations behind whom there is a spiritual reality. God has chosen one. Yahweh, the creator, has chosen one to be his own. And, um, and um, yeah, there you go. And one uh, nation as per that. Yeah, so there's, it's interesting. That I'm going to come to this later. But why there are 70 nations uh, in, in Genesis 10. And when Jesus sends out disciples in Luke's gospel, it's 70 mm-hmm. to the nations. What are they doing? Proclaiming the kingdom of God. Uh, proclaiming that that, that um, th- those nations which were disinherited are, are now welcomed back in. And that's, it's Jesus proclaiming that. Um, so the reason I go into this is because I think it really helps us understand the Gospels in particular, um, understand the significance of uh, of Babel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in a materialistic, secular, atheistic culture, how on earth do we make sense of or apply this idea that there is a spiritual realm which stands behind those things? Yeah. <coughs> I'm, I'm afraid being... Being a Christian means we're weird in that we do believe in a spiritual realm. And our friends who are materialistic, then they're, not, they're going to find this hard. But, and our temptation, and I think the temptation of evangelical churches like ours, has been to shy away from the weirdness. And we talk about God as creator. We don't really like talking about angels so much and demons so much because they're a bit weird, aren't they? And our friends might freak out about that. Um, but yeah, and no, I think there is, there is definitely a, a spiritual realm. And um, um, yeah. I think we can't really avoid that. But yes, how to make sense of it with our friends. I go to Jesus Christ. Jesus, what does Jesus Christ do? You know, he reveals God to us, reveals the spiritual realm, pulls, pulls it back. I go to him. Yes, yeah, so Charlie's question is, you know, what about the gods of this age? So is, is is like Jupiter and, you know, Marduk and all the other ancient gods? Are they sort of hanging around, bumming around, not really knowing what to do? I don't think God's concerned with necessarily with the specific deities. It's just that behind those things which people worship, be it Jupiter, be it Marduk, there is a, a demonic or a spiritual being which is real. I don't know what his name is. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think we have to have to conclude that those things are real. That, um, And we're going to see the significance of this as we come to the conquest narratives in particular. Um, we're going to come to that. So yeah, well, the, Bill's question is about spiritual battle. Yeah. And... Um, when we get to the Gospels, we see the value of this because yeah. I, um, I mentioned last week that the, obviously the, the fall is really significant. You fall in Adam and Eve. The fall is really significant to, to the epistles, to, to, uh, to Paul's writing. In the Gospels, I'd argue that this event is more significant, and, and, and the, kingdom, the notion of the kingdom of God and, and, and the versus, Jesus versus the demonic. I, I think this is a key event. Um, you t- sorry, you're, so Charlie's question is about I think the creation mandate. Yeah. Um, so fill the earth and subdue it. And, um, uh, sorry, and how is, how, what's the exact difference? In Italy? In nine, yeah, there's no subduit. Um, so Charlie observed there's no subduit in the chapter 9 version of the creation mandate, which is correct, but that then comes later um, when he says that the animals will dread, will, that verse 2, the fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth. So the principle of subduing. And, and animals um, is kind of there in verse 2. I don't think we should need to read into it hugely. I love your question. Great question. So um, Nathan observed that last week when we looked at um, what happened with the sons of God going into the daughters of men, creating the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. Um, they're called sons of God, but sometimes I refer to them as angels, and, and there need to be a different tier here. Um, good question. Two things sound that. Firstly, in, we looked at that ma- massive structure of Genesis 6-9, to nine, which is like a big... Big Mac. Remember that? The big chiasm. Um, chapter six, the, 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 of, the sons of God going to, parallels Babel. So on that big structure, they, they parallel one another, which indicates they should be understood in light of each other. Um, the reason I said they were angels is because in the New Testament, when Peter and Jude write about chapter six, it, it calls them angels. Because uh, that's that's the Greek word which they used, and they didn't call them sons of God. So I I co-opted their phrase, um, but yes, it seems that the sons of God are you know a part of his council. The angels are just servants. Yeah. Good. Right. Let's meet this chap Abraham then. So remember, he is a Chaldean idolater. Uh, he doesn't look like the the best guy uh, for for God to choose, and uh, and yet to him, by grace we might say. God makes this extraordinary promise. Uh, so look at chapter 12 with me. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name. Ding, 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 ding. Great. And you will be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples, literally on the ground, will be blessed through you. So God makes this threefold promise. If you want to fill in this box, who are God's people now? He's just disinherited all the nations. And yet, through this man, God is going to make a name for himself, a nation for himself, a blessed people. And where is God's place? Well, it's going to be a, a specific land. Uh, the land who got, which God was going to show. Um, God's presence, well, all God's people, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through him. This is the Shemite we've been looking for. This is the seed we've been looking for. All the ground will be blessed. And so what does Abraham do? Verse 7, he obeys. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your seed, to your offspring, I will give this ground. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So it looks like a cracking star, for Abram, doesn't he? He leaves his hometown, he leaves Babylon, he goes to this land which, which God shows him and here he is leaving Haran um, where he was, um, to, to, to find the promised land and you can see where he had to go to. Ur It's really far east. Remember, East is bad in the Bible, particularly in Genesis. East bad, west good and he goes all the way from Ur via Babylon um, down uh, to the promised land and that's where he, he makes this offering. And we might think, well, wow, brilliant. Um, why, doesn't, why doesn't it end there? Well, all along the way, Abraham makes a various massive errors of judgment. Um, what does Abraham do with this promise? Well, he's in the land and then a famine hits. And instead of trusting God, what does he do? He goes to Egypt. And for the first readers of Genesis, that's a terrible idea because Egypt is synonymous with slavery. And um, Abraham is... Um, uh, slightly gutted because his wife, Sarai, is really attractive and he's worried that Pharaoh might you know, want her for himself and so cause harm to to him. And, and Abraham's quite fond of himself. And so what does he do? He pretends that uh, Sarai is his sister. And so Pharaoh obviously makes his moves on Sarai and, it just, to, and, and just to keep himself safe, he goes, yeah, yeah, fine, go ahead, because he doesn't want to get on the wrong side of Pharaoh. Essentially, he uses his wife like a meat shield. <laughs> he doesn't want to get in trouble, so he pushes her in the way, he's a terrible husband. To save his own life, um, there's a lesson here. Don't read the Old Testament like a morality tale. Okay, if you're looking for good ethics, don't don't read the Old Testament like it's you know it's a list of nice morals for you to follow. You shouldn't push your wife in front of a bus to save your own. Um, but that's what Abraham did. So there you go. Now you learned something. Um, but then in chapter 13. Um, there's this massive battle. Abraham and his nephew, Lot, split up and, um, and, and they, they go to separate places. But, in the, but then this almighty battle um, um, breaks out um, between, uh, between five kings and four kings. And it's like this massive Lord of the Rings style epic sort of um, uh, battle. And Lot's, poor Lot's like stuck right in the middle. Um, Lot is is camping near the city of Sodom, and he gets caught up in the warfare and the bloodshed and he gets taken captive like an idiot and that means abram ugh, Abram has to go and sort, go and rescue him so Abram takes three hundred and eighteen crack troops of his own, okay Abram and the three hundred and uh, make a great film and he goes and rescues Lot. and, and Abram steps into this battle and rescues his nephew and, and and does this great deed and at the end of this battle. Um, the, the king of Sodom is really grateful for Abraham and his crack troops stepping in to help. And, um, and, and, and the king of Sodom offers him some of the spoils of the battle, some of the spoils of war. But Abraham refuses in, because he doesn't want to have anything to do with Sodom. But instead, he, he is blessed by the king of Jerusalem, the king of Salem, a, a chap called Melchizedek. And uh, this is quite a, a significant moment, this, this enormous battle. Because immediately after this enormous battle, immediately after Abraham um, rescues his offspring uh, from, uh, from, uh, from this, uh, this horrible situation, well, God decides uh, to cut a covenant uh, with Abraham. So let me uh, read chapter 15 and verse 1. After this, that is after this battle, and that's significant. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, "Sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus?" And Abraham said, "You have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir." <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to him, "This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir." He took him outside and said, look up at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring, so shall your seed be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. So notice how all the, the repeated language um, of stars and sand and land, oh, God reiterates this promise. Um, and I want to see here that the type of covenant being cut here is really important. Again, it's an inherited reward. Uh, this covenant is cut in response to Abraham's obedience. He's just rescued his, uh, his nephew. He's done this amazing, fantastic battle, victory. We're in by the obedience of the covenant head. But then we're on by grace for his offspring. And so anyone in union with Abraham is blessed. And so the question is, well, how can, how, how can Abraham know that God's going to keep his promise? Well, God then makes this oath, a self-maledictory oath. And um, this uh, p- picture sort of sums it up. God, God tells Abraham to get a whole bunch of animals um, an, an oaf, a heifer, a bunch of duck, bunch of birds, and to then cut each of them in half. Okay, and it's just a bloody mess. And you know, half a cow here, half a cow here, half a goat here, half a goat here, half a sheep here, half a sheep here. And then Abraham sort of collapses and falls into a, 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 a deep sleep. But in his dream, he sort of in this vision, he sees this flaming brazier passing between the two halves of each of the of the animals. It's what's called a self-maledictory oath. Uh, an oath which someone says, if I break this, if I break my promise, so shall it happen to me. And this was a common way in the ancient Near East that people made oaths. They cut animals in half and walked in between them said, if I break my promise, let me be cut in half. That's what God says to Abraham. It's just like the, I guess, if the rainbow is a, is a bow pointing upwards. Well, I guess this is a similar self-maledictory oath. God's making a promise which he himself cannot break. Well, in later chapters, um, the uh, uh, more and more details are added to this uh, covenant. Um, so, cha- turn with me to uh, chapter sixteen—sorry, um, chapter seventeen—and we're going to read about what happens with circumcision. Incidentally, this is a hilarious picture. This was in someone's Bible. Um, it's an angel po- helping Abraham work out how exactly to circumcise himself. <laughs> Imagine reading your quiet time and having that little picture pop up. Is that an aid to your devotions? I don't know. But the, the monkey, yeah, anyway, the monkey did that. was probably having a laugh. Um, let's read chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then... I'll make my covenant between me and you, and I'll greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will, you will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I'll make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you and the kings will come from you. I'll establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you. And your offspring after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And so on and so forth. Um, so various different elements uh, added. Um, God uh, says um, uh, you're going to, Abraham's renamed it was Abraham. Now he's Abraham, which means he, his name means father of nations. So again, we're thinking he is the Shemite in whom all the Japhethites are going to come and dwell. His wife Sarah becomes Sarah, which means princess, which indicates there's going to be a royal offspring coming from her. And so he's given uh, circumcision as a specific sign for this covenant. And circumcision kind of means three things: it's a sign of um, of covenant, it's just that uh, for Abraham's children. So later we read, if Abraham doesn't circumcise his children, well, look what happens. Verse four um is that right verse 14 sorry verse 14 any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant so if Abraham doesn't circumcise any of the boys in his household any of the children uh, or, or the male servants in his household they are cut off so c- circumcision is a sign of covenant it's also a sign of consecration um it's common in the ancient Near East world people to cut off the foreskin if there were priests. And it happened in Egypt, for example. Egyptian priests um, in serving the temples, that they, their foreskins would be cut off as, to show that they're being separated, consecrated for that role. And I think it suggests that Israel, as a nation of priests, they're all to be set, all to be set <coughs> apart in, in order to witness to the nations. But also it's a sign of cleansing. Uh, foreskins were considered unclean. because of the stuff which can kind of grow underneath it, but I won't go there. A bit graphic. And so the the unclean bit is, is cut off. The unclean bit is cut off, and it's a sign of cleanliness. So all the girls are wincing. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's too much information. But it's useful information, isn't it? Unpleasant but useful. The men are wincing too. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yes, we're going to come to the new covenant, but aren't we grateful for the new covenant? Yes, we are. Okay, so there is this uh, sign to, to pass on. Um, and uh, in between uh, chapters um, 17 and onwards, again, Abraham keeps on making a whole bunch of catastrophic errors. Um, he, chapter 16, in fact, he marries his, his maidservant, Hagar. Um, then he, um, uh, he does some good stuff, like he intercedes for his nephew, Lot, who somehow moves into Sodom, which is a terrible idea. Then in chapter 20, guess what? Abraham goes to um, a foreign land because of a famine, sound familiar? And he, he's worried about the prettiness of his wife because of the king there, sound familiar? And guess what Abraham does this time? He pushes his wife in front again of the bus and, um, and, gets, uh, and, and, and tries to save his own skin. So Abraham, again, he's, he, he's screwing up repeatedly. He's not the model husband, far from it. He keeps on messing up. But then in chapter 22... We get this key test of faith. So look at verse 16 and 18, chapter 22. So uh, just to pray, see the what, what happens. Um, God, off, God, obviously Abraham is a son at this point through through Sarah, Isaac, miraculously given because of our ancient age, and God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son. This is the one through whom all the promises are hanging. And God says, now now, now kill him, so offer him up to me. It's a test of his faith. Um, uh, Abraham, uh, Isaac would have been uh, a, not a boy at this age, but, but a man. So he would have gone along with this willingly. And, and that's what he did. So Abraham and his son walk up this mountain, Isaac carrying the wood and... And there, as you might know the story, just as they're about to, Abraham's just about to thrust his dagger uh, to kill his son. An angel stops him, saying, don't do this. In fact, you might, from this Caravaggio painting, there's a ram caught in a thicket nearby. Um, and and uh, he says, no, this, this sacrifice, this is what you should do instead. It, it's a test of Abraham's faith. Um, and incidentally, do you know what that mountain became? This mountain, Mount Moriah, the temple. Yeah, that's right. So this is this is Jerusalem, what, the city which would become Jerusalem. This is where the temple would be built, Mount Moriah. Um, so look at verse sixteen. The angel, sorry, verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous in the stars in the sky and as the sand in the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your seed, all the nations on the ground will be blessed because you... Have obeyed me. Again, do you see that royal grant? Because you obeyed, blessing now, ongoing, for anyone in union with you. And the rest of Genesis, we, we can just speed up now really quick. It's basically just repeating this covenant again and again and again. Um, as a result of Abraham's obedience, this, this covenant passes down the various different generations. Uh, should we do a bit of a quiz? So who, who's, who is the from Abraham, who is the line of promise? What's his son? Isaac. There we go. Abraham to Isaac. Isaac's son. So it's not, it's not, Ru, it's not Ru, uh, Ishmael, who's the older son, but, uh, but Isaac. Uh, how about Isaac's uh, sons? Jacob. It's right. Jacob, not Esau, again, who is the eldest. Uh, and what about Jacob? Sorry, mixed, mixed answers here. Yeah, yeah, but which is the which is the promised line? Jo- J- Joseph, Judah, Joseph, Judah. Well, initially it is Joseph, isn't it? He got the coat, the sign of inheritance. He is the one who you know who got the deal. Um, but later in the wilderness, um, uh, the uh, the tribe of Judah, the Ephraimites they sort of forfeit their, their role as the leading tribe. And so it gets handed over to Judah. And so at the end of uh, Genesis, it said kings are going to come uh, from the line of Judah. And one thing I, I quite enjoy noticing is, um, and I'll put it here on your handout as a suggestion, the different generations almost represent the different, um, para- it kind of parallels different periods in Israel's history. So Abraham um, parallels Israel's early history. Remember, he, he was called from outside the land and then brought into the land. That, that parallels what happened to Israel, rescued and brought in. Um, uh, then uh, Isaac's uh, generation, he, he parallels Israel's middle history, sort of enjoying the land, enjoying blessing in the land. Nothing really happens in, in, uh, in Isaac's life. Um, Jacob, his generation, sort of uh, parallels Israel's later history, because Jacob is exiled eastwards, um, as you see from this diagram. Um, Isaac travels, he, he is exiled eastwards, he goes far away um, to, find a, uh, to find a wife. And then Israel, and, and then of course, um, J- Joseph's generation parallels Israel's last uh, end history. As they're out in the, in the, you know, they're away in Babylon this time, not, not Egypt, and yet through them, nations come in. I take that, I give that to you as a suggestion, as an interesting way to, uh, to read Genesis. Um, but whilst in exile, whilst in, uh, in slavery, of course, what does, what does Joseph do? But he manages to save the world. Um, all of the nations are drawn in and through Joseph, blessing goes out. So again, we're seeing the same themes happen again and again and again and again and again. So if you want to fill in this box, God's people, God's place... God's presence. Who are God's people at the end of the book of Genesis? Well, now there are seventy of them. We're given a specific number: seventy. Hmm. Interesting. Paralleling the seventy nations, now there are seventy Shema, uh, Sem- Semites, seventy uh, of, the, of, of this line who are going to then go on and rescue the nations. Uh, they, they are circumcised people. They are cleansed people. Uh, they, they are consecrated people for the sake of the nations. Uh, what is God's place? Well, it's the land of Canaan. But it, there's a problem because they're currently in Egypt. And what is God's presence? Well, through them, blessing will come to the nations. Um, we just answer from the floor? In, in what way is Abraham a lot like us? Okay, anyone want to share any, any insights from Romans 4? Just shout them out where you are. Yeah, he made, yeah, made serious mistakes, didn't he? Brilliant. He was believed God. It was credited to him as righteous. So he made a whole bunch of serious mistakes. Um, and yet he believed. He, he simply trusted. He didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. It's by grace, but through faith. And Abraham was saved. Now, that's, that's like us, isn't it? We're saved by grace alone, grace alone by faith alone. It's exactly as we, we, we heard this morning. Uh, circumcision um, came many, many, many years after God already credited to him righteousness. So Abraham was not saved by his, uh, his, his circumcision or, or, or saved by his works. He himself was saved by faith. But what does James say? You guys on this side. H- how would you add to that? What would you, how would you caveat that? Yes, he's a friend of God. Yeah. Because these two passages are, are often... Contrasted, People go, uh-huh, how, can, how can Romans 4 be true if, if James 2 is true? Yes, and it's, that's, that's it, isn't it? So Abraham was justified when he believed um, in Genesis 15. But having been justified, works followed inevitably. And his works were the evidence of saving faith. So James is writing to Christians who are kind of um, thinking, ah, grace, I'm going to do what I like now. And he's saying, no, works follow um it's being saved by faith whereas Paul is writing to Christians who will who, be who tempted to think that they need to do things in order to be saved he's saying no you're saved by grace alone so two different audiences but both the same message but the point I want to show you here is Abraham is, is a model believer he's a type of believer he's a sinner who himself was saved by faith alone and that's really important and I think we're used to thinking of Abraham like that aren't we and and that's why in um uh, in Galatians, Paul says the Abrahamic covenant is the gospel preached in advance. Because it's the same gospel. It's the same as the new covenant which we're going to come to in weeks, in coming weeks. But the thing I think is less familiar for us here is of us to think of Abraham not just as a prototype believer, but also as a, a, a prototype Christ, a model, a foreshadowing of the Christ to come. So look at Genesis 26, 4-5. Uh, to five. This is what God says to Isaac. God promises Isaac, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give them all these lands. And through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. Abraham is a, model, is a prototype Christ. And um, it is through his, um, uh, it is through, uh, I'm going to go back to this diagram here. It is through Abraham's obedience This this covenant is cut. And then it is on by grace for his offspring, whether that's Isaac or Jacob or whoever, or going onwards and onwards. And anyone in union with him through that sign of circumcision is, 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 is blessed. And Abraham is a prophet, he speaks with God. He is a priest who offers sacrifices to God. He is a king because he brings rest and peace after that battle. So, Abraham's obedience as a type of Christ is what wins blessing for his offspring. And I guess there are various ways in which we see that. In the same way that Abraham kept on pushing his wife in front of the bus, <laughs> multiple occasions. Well, we, what does Christ do? Well, the exact opposite. Uh, Christ steps in front of the bus instead of his wife, the church. Um, see, again and again, Abraham foreshadows Christ, either positively or, or, or negatively. So the Abrahamic covenant is the gospel preached in advance. Uh, two closing applications before we go to Q&A. Um, two things I want to show us here. It's really important that we receive the sign of faith. Really, really important. Um, Jesus repeats the command for all his followers to receive the covenant sign of baptism. That is not optional. Uh, yes, you're saved by faith alone, but Jesus says you must be baptized. And that is why if, if you're not baptized, you really must be. You really should be. And um, I just want to throw it, we don't have time to do full justice this now, but I want to throw the seed out there, particularly if there's a new thought to you but I would encourage you to give the covenant sign to your children also. Because Abraham was told to do that for his children. If they didn't, it was a sign that he wasn't trying to bring them up in, in, in this covenant of faith. In fact, if he didn't do that, it said they will be cut off. It's a disobedience for him not to give his children the covenant sign. And in Colossians 2, uh, Paul equates circumcision uh, with baptism. And I encourage you to consider that more. Uh, indeed, um, I encourage you to raise your children not as neutrals, but raise your children in the faith, just as Abraham did, uh, just as everyone throughout the whole uh, Bible did. Raise your children in the Lord, uh, not as neutral bystanders who can make their decision later on if they so wish. Paul Peter says uh, at the Pentecost sermon, "This promise is for you and your children." Um, so I'm going to throw that grenade out there and let it explode, and try and justify it another time. Let's have a Q and A. One turn the person next to you, um, and we'll have. Um, We'll have uh, some questions oh, just excellent question just because, yeah. excellent question so loz's question is um, we observed how throughout genesis the day around covenant keeps again mentioned coming back again and again and again repeated and reminded of every generation um, <coughs> the language keeps coming back is that because of their each generation's continued obedience or is it just abraham's well again i think genesis 26 gives us the answer um genesis uh, the, the previous passage we just looked at and it's really important. It's really interesting because God doesn't say to Isaac, "Your your offspring will be as numerous as the sand on the shore, the stars in the sky." If you obey me, it says, "Because your father Abraham obeyed me." Um, it's complete. As long as Isaac it remains in union, faith union, uh, through this sign of of, of circumcision, then um, yeah, he, he's blessed because what Abraham did, because that extraordinary battle. And believe me, we're going to keep coming back to it as we keep seeing these successive covenants coming about. So the, um, the uh, later the Levitical covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New Covenant, they often happen after a big battle, after a big victory, and then God cuts this covenant in response to this big victory. Um, so yeah, that's really important, laws. So yes, it's a royal grant, not a, a Susan and Vassal treaty. Not a, an inherit, it's an inherited... Um, it's, an, mm-hmm. it's a king... No, I've, I've I've forgot my my new terminology, which is all confusing. Um, yeah, I, I'm used to the old stuff. It's uh, very importantly, it's a it's a royal grant covenant, not a Susan Vassal treaty. It's important to distinguish that. <laughs> There's a brilliant preamble to really, to what is actually a very simple question. Um, so Josh's question, after a very lengthy preamble, was: Can I baptise? Can he baptise people? Can anyone baptise anyone? Do you know what, interestingly? Yes, yes. Um, it, 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 it's true in every Christian denomination that anyone can baptise anyone as long as the the words are, I baptise you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If I was a Roman Catholic priest, I'd be saying that, um, but I'm not. Um, as, a, as an Anglican minister, that, that is true. Anyone can baptise anyone. Um, and uh, that's because it's, it's an evangelistic thing. Ideally, though, baptism should be public. It's, it's, not, it's not just... Um, a lot of people think about baptism completely wrong, and it winds me up to no end. But a lot of people think it's merely me saying to God, I am now yours. So I now, I, I'm now trusting you, God, and they individualise it. It's not. It's a sign from God to us. So Jesus is public baptism. God says, you are my son whom I love and who, with whom I'm well pleased. And anyone who's baptised, they receive that sign. And so the other day when we baptised Jake um, and, and Liz and her daughter Erin, we all witnessed that sign, and when we saw them going down and up, we saw our baptism. So it should be a public sign, much like the Lord's Supper is a public sign. It's for the benefit of the church. So, I, so normatively, it'll be at the church gathering. So normatively, it would be um, the pastor or one of the elders doing the baptism. Um, but I, I, you know, if someone's at death's door, <laughs> and uh, so oh, hang on, I'm going to go get ministers to baptize you. No, he's baptizing. So the question is, the same applies for the Lord's Supper, communion. Um, the Lord's Supper is subtly different because it's like a, um, it's like a visual sermon. And um, in the same way that... Probably the most helpful thing to say, a, a part of the Lord's Supper is discipline. And it's important that elders are able to refuse the Lord's Supper to those who they know to be in unrepentant sin. And so, um, again, normatively, even though the Bible doesn't say this, throughout church history there's a wisdom in that the elders are those who distribute bread and wine... Um, because they are the stewards who are there to feed God's people in Jesus' various parables, um, but also because they can then uh, discipline and, and, and withhold Lord's bread and wine from those they know to be in repent, unrepentant sin, whereas it would be hard for Joe Bloggs to do that. There you go. That way. question is, is there a distinction between circumcision, which is probably private, and baptism, which is quite public? Well, actually, surprisingly, the old circumcision isn't that private. Um, if you know anything about Jews, um, if you've got Jewish friends, you know circumcision is quite public affairs, and and they the, the rabbi would normally do it with a flint knife in public, with the, in front of it's the whole party. You know, the, the, it's a big thing on the eighth day to have your your son circumcised. It's a huge thing because you know nearly all of Paul's letters writing to to, to, to churches, which are predominantly Jewish, um, or this, I mean, he's really talking about. I'm saying, well, how does anyone know anyone's Jewish? It's not like everyone's walking around with. they're going, hey, I'm Jewish. You know, like, how would anyone know? Um, I, and I, I think um, it, there, there are other external signifiers, but, but certainly circumcision is definitely a public thing, both at, 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 when it normatively happens, uh, at birth, eight days after birth, uh, but also it's, it's a sign of, I guess it's, um, it's a synecdoche of the whole. It's, it, circumcision becomes a, a bit like we, we talk about a jumbo jet or a jump, you know, people talk about jumbo jet. Well, jumbo jet, jet is just the engine. But of, if I say, oh, it's a jumbo jet, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying there's an engine flying through the sky. I'm saying there's an airplane flying through the sky, but it's the jumbo jet which is powering it. That It's a synaptic key, that the, the small bit represents the whole. And I think it's similar to circumcision. Um, circumcision became a synaptic key. It's, it's like I'm a, a, a small bit representing obedience of the whole Jewish law. And yeah. Thank you, Rani. So isn't it good to see that, this theme of God's blessing going to the ends of the earth, God spreading his name to the ends of the earth, is not a small theme in the Bible. It's everywhere. And we're going to come on to that next time. So hopefully what we've seen today is how God's, even though God disinherited the nations at Babel, handing them over to other spiritual beings, handing people over to their idolatry and to their sin, and God still has a plan to one day inherit them back in. And I just don't want to spoil the story, um, but Jesus is a big part of that.